Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. I am AJ Conrad, here with my wonderful co-host, Ali Matu. Hello, Ali. How's it going, Conrad? It's going well. Uh, we are on episode 55, if you can believe it. Um, I cannot. I know, I know. <laughs> and we are going to be discussing something really, well, I was surprised at how much I, I now feel I have to say about this, but we are discussing Kingsman, the, special, the Secret Service, which just came out this past week in the U.S. I think it was released in the U.K. a little bit earlier. Which in makes the- sense. It does. Um, in the crossover, we have Kingsman versus Kickass, and what is the question today? Today's question, dear nerdlings, is going to be which film better uses stylized violence. And keeping in the theme with this uh, very uh, British episode today, we've got a cool top five. We're talking about top five British exports. Indeed, indeed. So I'm excited to see what your list of those are. I think. Quite a few people can predict what several of mine are, <laughs> including you. So we'll see if we get any mind melts today. <laughs> this will be this will be pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to that. But Me before- too. I was about to say before we get into all that, we have a very special service announcement. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we don't do advertisements on this show because we really like to have kind of our own independent voice. But what we did want to talk about today is our dear friends at Singularity & Co., Right. And if those of you who remember last year, we did a special episode uh, with CC James, who's one of the co-owners of Singularity and Co. And they do a lot of really great things primarily, which is saving out of print uh, sci-fi um, fiction, specifically vintage. And they digitize it and they really put this out there for everybody to have for eternity, hopefully. But to do this, they need everybody's funding uh, from from followers and fans and anybody who loves sci fiction. So sci fi sorry, science fiction. Hello, Heather is telling <laughs> and her name. Yeah, I mean, this is they, awesome. This is it's such a great service for the, the the whole field of science fiction and uh, they've been operating for a long time and have brought back so many different texts and uh, they're just you know for anyone who loves science fiction um, this is just such a great organization to support uh, so they are running another Kickstarter to keep things going for another year it's called Save the Fi- Sci-Fi The Next Generation so uh, this one I am hoping is like run by the Enterprise D with Jean-Luc Picard at the helm, a whole new captain. Uh, mm. Kirk is gone. We got we got a new group of folks here, but lots of cool Kickstarter uh, rewards uh, for sponsors. There's a lot that involve getting um, a membership, lifetime or annual membership. But the coolest, oh my gosh, Conrad, I'm really excited about this one um, because I think, this, I think you're hoping you're going to win this one. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm going to win. I really <laughs> want this one. So. For anyone who backs the Kickstarter at $25 or more and then tweets about it, including the the handle at Singularity Co., you are entered to be one of the winners who gets to have a sleepover party at Singularity & Co. How awesome is that, Conrad? It's pretty awesome. And you can it's bring awesome. up to 12 of your very cool sci-fi friends to join you in this sleepover and so so that's it you you back the kickstarter for 25 bucks you tweet about it 
and make sure to include at Singularity Co. in the tweet so you know that so they know you've, you've done it and then you're entered into it and that's all you have to do. So I hope you support their project. I hope you keep them around for another year and, you know, live on science fiction. Thank you, Singularity Check. and Co. Check you uh, check them out at singularity.co, that's C-O, um, and another shortcut that'll get you there. You can type in savethesci-fi.com. Um, Conrad, the only thing I need to warn people is they have this really awesome astronaut helmet there that looks like it's like that astro- kind of like haunted episode of Doctor Who when they go to the library and there's like, you know, these astronauts and they kind of like... Their skin wears away. It's kind of scary. So if you do win the sleepover and you're there, just be careful of the uh, astronaut helmet because I kind of got scared a little bit when we were there. You just wanted to wear it. It's clear. (laughs) I wanted to wear it and then play with a lot of their models that they have there. I will say that's that's the thing. The space is so cool and there there are a lot of toys in that space that are just, you know... I don't know. They may have to lock those up <laughs> for this sleepover <laughs> because it's just way too tempting. Um, but it is it is a very cool space. So so check them out, Singularity.co, and check out episode eight of Super Fantastic Nerd Hour to learn a little bit more about our friends at Singularity. Um, and we thank them for their service to this wonderful field of science fiction. Conrad... We got to talk. We got to change gears here a little bit and uh, get out of science fiction and get into the spy thriller. So we got Kingsman to talk about. Um, How about we do a little non-spoiler discussion and then get into spoilers here. So uh, Kingsman is a uh, film that just came out, as you mentioned, up top based on a comic book written by Mark Miller and Dave Gibson or Gibbons um, and directed by Matthew Vaughn, who we previously know from X-Men First Class, as well as Kick-Ass, which is kind of where we got the idea here for Mm -hmm. the crossover. So um, there's a lot to say about this film, but this is the film that Matthew Vaughn left X-Men Days of Future Past to make. He was uh, at a bar kind of getting drunk with with Mark Miller and they were talking about how they're really tired of all of these very serious spy movies and wanted to do something very fun. So Mark Miller's like, yeah, let me just make a comic book like that. And um, uh, Matthew Vaughn's like, okay, I'll direct that and started working on that script and said, you know, I'm going to leave X-Men to do this. So this is kind of a big deal for, for Matthew Vaughn. Um, before we get into spoilers, what did you think? Um, I, it's hard for me to get into it without giving spoilers, but overall I initially liked where it was going and ultimately did not like where it ended up. There's some parts of it that I really enjoyed. Um, and, and I think we could give the, the general synopsis, right? Yeah, the, the premise of the film. Right. So, so basically, it follows the path of this young, uh, and they even refer to him in the film as a bit of rough. So um, an English lad from the wrong side of the tracks uh, gets sort of initiated into a secret society of spies. Uh, And part of why this happens is because his father had also been training to be in this elite group of um, agents and was killed. So, So they basically have been sort of keeping watch over him and it follows his path through, through the storyline. 
Yeah, I believe that's a newcomer or at least newcomer to the U.S., uh, Taryn Edgerton. Um, kind of uh, playing an unknown here in that main lead. And uh, lots of other individuals who were, uh, audiences will probably recognize Colin Firth, uh, mm-hmm. who a lot of people know from very different things. Uh, kind of d- depends on uh, on the stuff you're into. Uh, but many audiences will probably remember him from King's Speech. Um, and he's been in lots of other cool oh, stuff. Oh, please. You know what everybody remembers him from? Uh, go ahead, Pro- Conrad. Pride and Prejudice. That's what they remember him from. <laughs> That's the other place. And also Bridget are. Jones's Diary. There's yeah. that as well. So, so no matter what your your niche is, you will re- recognize Colin Firth from something. Right, uh, and, and, and then, also also Michael Caine, who clearly has not aged in many years. No, he, well, he didn't age in Interstellar. So, in, in in all those years of that film, so he's and he's not aging here. Um, and Samuel, Samuel I, L. Jackson as well. Uh, who everyone knows from the Marvel films um, and a ton of other stuff as well. Uh, we talked about him from our Pulp Fiction revisited episode from the fall. Uh, so you know some some people that people will recognize. And uh, there's I can't wait to get into spoilers. Because well, yeah, because there's a pretty big cameo <laughs> right at the beginning. So I'm I almost just let let that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, oh, no. Uh, Mark Strong as well is in here, and he's someone who was in Kick-Ass as well. He played uh, the villain there, and here he's playing a good guy. And he was also in uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So uh, you're definitely going to recognize some people here. But, Conrad, it is a film, um, you're right, it's following this lad, um, social clash, social clash. Well, I guess social clash. A little bit of that. Social class um, is a theme running here. Uh, How to be a gentleman is a theme running here. It's a film that is very self-referential. It is talking about other spy films as well as other kind of films out there in the ethos. Uh, It's a very violent film, uh, very stylized violence. If you've seen Kick-Ass, you'll see this. To the point where, you know, I was posting on Twitter uh, yesterday and I got in conversation with a few people who asked, you know, what you think it it was like? And I said, yeah, I've I've got some thoughts. Overall, I liked it. So we'll probably have a little interesting discussion about that because it sounds like I liked it more than you did. But I said, you got to be careful here. I would not take, um, well, I would probably not take your kids to this. It's a pretty violent film. And there's one scene in particular that I think would be really hard for kids to understand just quite what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. And it could be a pretty difficult scene for a lot of kids to watch. Yes. Um and I also feel like there's a bit of a difference in how it was marketed and how it, how my perception of the film while watching it. So we'll get into that a little bit more in the spoilers. Yeah. Um, uh, so one one of my um, I should say I overall I like this film if you can stomach the violence. I will say that um, in terms of yeah, this is something we always talk about here, Conrad. In terms of diversity. Not much in gender, although there are two female characters that definitely have an arc. Well, one at least has an arc. Um, the other is kind of a... Um, a, a throwaway? A, yeah. A throwaway. Yeah, you could say that. Um, and really, any 
person who's from who's an ethnic minority is pretty much the villain. There's only two really, and they're both kind of villains. So the film left a lot lack, uh, left a lot to be desired in terms of uh, representation of uh, different aspects of humanity. Um, well, so- I also think that that's the thing. I, I think that this film was going f- because it is referencing different spy films and it's referencing certain things about different spy films specifically they mention and it's clear that they're trying to go for a james bond reference throughout this um as well as a little bit of austin powers with some of the ridiculousness um but i feel like that's sort of why they made some of those choices but they annoyed me nonetheless so you know um, and, and that's and that's the thing so i mean Overall, I will say I did not like the film, and I think I saw where they were going, and I really wanted to like it, and there were aspects that I did like. I think the choreography was incredible. I think there was a great amount of care trying like trying to go for certain things um, in such an over-the-top way that uh, I think that they were hoping to make it ridiculous enough, but it didn't quite make it there, so I felt like it was a film that didn't really know it was trying to be. And you've mm. heard me say that before. And yeah. it really took away from my enjoyment of it. And there was so much in there that it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't pushed almost to the ridiculous point where I could laugh at it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it, so, it, so, but, so I think, I think, you know, without further ado, I think we should go into the spoiler piece so I yeah, can talk a little bit more about that. We, let's do that. Um, I, you know, overall, I'm going to say it's style over substance. I do think there's a lot of style here, and I think there it was enough to keep me entertained. And for people who saw Kick Ass, for people who have seen that sort of Guy Ritchie type of direction, and that in, uh, who pe- for people who might want that and enjoy that, go see this film. Um, for others, uh, if you didn't like Kick Ass, if you don't like that approach, you're not going to enjoy this film at all. I will say, um, last thing before we get to spoilers, I think this film covers a lot of the same territory that X-Men First Class did. And that was a film that had more substance to it and, and showed a bit more respect restraint um so you know I, I enjoyed it i recommend it for people who like this style but i think we are gonna have an interesting debate about this mm, okay so now we are leaving the spoiler free zone and there will be spoilers so so big alarm bells are going off right now so- yeah you've been warned we are uh, putting on our bespoke suits um and entering <laughs> our secret lair of kingsmen um and we will be discussing all things spoilery uh right. from here on out um okay so all right so let's jump in right into it um mark so- hamill no mark that's hamill. not what i was gonna start out with but i guess <laughs> you are jeez ollie <laughs> Wow. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Mark Hamill. Prematurely, like, throwing out that spoiler there, huh? (laughs) You feeling a little insecure there? Sorry. It's from the very beginning of the film. And did you recognize him as Mark Hamill? I recognized him as somebody familiar, but I didn't realize it was him until later. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was pretty sure it was. I was like, that guy looks a lot like Mark Hamill. And then he started talking, and I heard that Joker voice from Batman the Animated Series. And I'm like, this I'm, this could be Mark Hamill. Wait, no, they're not going to get Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill's done nothing, and he's going to be nothing for you know uh, in terms of live action for a long time. And he's not going to be in anything until Star Wars: The Force Awakens. And then you were wrong. You were wrong. And I was totally wrong. And it's a uh, you know I haven't read the comic. But it's a total in-joke for anyone who's read the comic. In the comic, uh, the main villain is col- is a big sci-fi fan. This kind of connects back to Singularity. And he is con- uh, collecting these uh, stars from all of these uh, major science fiction franchises. And one of the stars he collects is Mark Hamill. So that scene in the comic is Mark Hamill captured and here in the film they got mark hamill to play this character so, so it's a nice little easter egg for it's for a those total fans. easter egg but, and, but the, okay so what i was going to say and, and that i think the mark hamill piece is all great i did i never read the comic so it's you know that's i probably some of those references were lost on me had you ever read it no, I hadn't. But from what I've read, a lot was changed. It's very okay. loosely based. There, it's much more MI6 and not the separate organization. The villain works differently. Okay. Uh, the, the two leads are family, not not sort of uh, trying to you know not this other relationship that we have in the film. So it's it's a loosely based set okay. of circumstances. Well, so here's the thing: I really liked Kickass a lot. Um, mm. I I saw the trailers for Kick-Ass. I was excited to see it. I really loved it. Um, the the sequel to Kick-Ass, not as much, but I, you know, I feel like the first film was very successful with what it did. Sure. Um, so when I saw the trailer for this, I was really excited. Um, and maybe that maybe I should have had more of a sense of what it was going to be like, given what Kick-Ass was about. But just based on, I only saw one trailer. Did you see any of the trailers? I actually saw, so I saw the trailer and I saw the uh, the bar scene, that first fight scene. That was previewed at WonderCon last year. Okay, I so did not see that. So maybe that would have given me a little bit more to go on. But even that, sure. not necessarily. Um, it was, there was a lot of tongue in cheek in the trailer and it was kind of like, you know, how it was initially thrown out there was a little bit like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking sure. Barrels meets Austin Powers meets Kick-Ass. And, but there was sort of this irreverent humor to it um, and definitely a black humor to it. Yeah. But, it, you know, the thing about Kick-Ass that... I really liked and I wasn't quite I guess I just wasn't quite expecting it here because in my mind this was being in some ways billed as a kids movie and not mm-hmm. necessarily kids but maybe teenage kids because it was rated R mm-hmm. but which I didn't really realize until I started watching the movie yeah I was like this is far too violent to be PG-13 but then- I thought I you know what I didn't realize it was rated R either and there was like a ton of kids in the theater that we were seeing it in yeah and I just was you know even watching it I was super uncomfortable with the fact that there were so many kids in there sure. um, and so so there is all that um, and as I was saying before like I think, they were trying to go for this, you know, they're 
they're basically pulling out all the stops. Like this, this film is definitely for people that love spy films because it's poking fun at it, but it's also trying to be its own film, its own right. It's making fun of all the stereotypical characters, which is why I think they did what they did with the villains. So very yeah. James Bond in that respect. Um, and I mean, there's, there's, very specific moments where um, Samuel L. Jackson's character says, you know, this is I expect uh, you bet you're expecting for me to have an elaborate plot to kill you um, and explain what my whole motivation is, here is. And then he says it's not that kind of movie and shoots Colin Firth. That right. is kind of the end to that. And so it, there's referential there. And then uh, when there's a great scene where uh, our main lead has to name a dog and names him uh, JB. And uh, uh, Michael Caine's character, I think, is saying... Uh, he goes uh, through all sorts of different... <laughs> uh, James Bond, Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne. No, he goes and, through, uh, it, it is Jack Bauer, actually. It is Jack Bauer. Yeah, and that's so why I just ruined it. I just ruined the punchline. You ruined the punchline there, Ali. <laughs> but there, there's all these moments that, um, for anyone who is a fan of this genre, you'll, you'll definitely pick up on it. There was that great moment with... Uh, uh, they're saying, uh, you know, this is going to be kind of like uh, Pretty Woman, blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, oh, I don't get any of those references. Oh, My Fair Lady. It's like that. So th- it's it's not just referencing um, spy, the spy genre, but it's referencing all sorts of different types of media here. Well, it is. And so, so then that brings me to the problem that I have with it. And What's your problem? Uh, it's what I was talking about before in terms of it not really deciding what, what it wants to be. And if it's it's not, you know, clearly it wasn't supposed to be quite as ridiculous as Austin Powers is. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, because that's just so far to the point of ridiculousness and you're just, it's all in it, fun, you know? I mean, at, at that point, it's basically like Saturday Night Right, right, right. So sketch. that's not what they were going for here. Um, and it is a British, I mean, clearly it's a British sensibility. Um, but I guess, okay, so the problem I had with the fact that, you know, they they basically deliberately, I think, typecast Samuel L. Jackson and the woman who plays Gazelle, who's his sister, his assistant, um, who's an assassin, who has uh, prosthetic legs. Sophia Botella. Yeah. And yep. she's, I mean, she's amazing. And she's, I think she's an amazing Bond style. Oh, she's kind of. awesome. But to me, it's kind of like, okay, you went through all this trouble to do all of this to make your point. But part of the whole point is that they were do- like, you know, I don't think we need to go there. And so the lack of diversity generally in making don't all need to go the diverse. Where? Well, you were saying it before in that it, it's sort of that classic spy movie where all the bad guys are are um, ethnic minorities. Ethnic minor- minorities, and you know all the spies are generally men, and any female. There's like one token. And I will call it a token female in there. Yeah. And they don't, she's supposed to be just as elite, in fact, more so than the main character. Yet they minimize her. They have her screaming and acting like very helpless throughout most of the film to the point where I don't really believe that she's going to get to the highest echelon in this organization. Like, I can't even believe that she's actually there. Um, and then I will also throw out there that I, I felt like, the super tasteless joke at the end. Oh with, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, is so it just was not necessary, and I felt like they could have made just such a better movie, and all the pieces were there. 
clearly this is a talented director, talented writer. They had some great material to go on. And I get it. I do get that it's not supposed to be serious, but it still offended me. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming at so, it from. Yeah, you know, my uh, my thoughts about this are, are pr- pretty mixed. So Gzell, that character was originally a male in the comic, which I didn't realize until I was just doing some prep for this episode. So my hat's off to um, uh, Matthew Vaughn here for changing that and increasing some represent, increasing the representation of, of female characters here. Um that being said, you're right. If we look at the pr- female protagonist, there are many scenes where she is a bit more of a helpless character, needs support from from the male lead. The male lead also has this chip on his shoulder and is not all all there. But um, I think that the where I completely agree with you here about the film doesn't know what it's doing is when it comes to the some of its message about uh, class. And so it, it one of the main messages here in the film is that um, anyone can become a gentleman. You know, manners maketh man is sort of the, the line that Colin Firth keeps saying. Um, and it's this idea that it doesn't matter what you were born into, but you can learn the ways of moving for moving up in social class. That's kind of the message here. However, that is <laughs> balanced by this whole idea that sure, yeah, you can move up in society. You need to look the part. You need to mm-hmm. have the suit. You need to dress like us. You need to talk like this. And no, any- actually, actually, that's the one piece that they they did say he didn't need to talk like them. Okay, so you take he that just one needs part to be, out. He just <laughs> needs to. He just needs to do better to be better than his past self. I think was the well. They, neat the, answer so they to that. say that they say that that a gentleman is working to uh, be look down on his past self and to try to improve. Right, that's the message. Right. But then so, what so, we see. Yeah, what no, the, the message is, is a totally elitist world. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, so there's there's this, uh, there's what the film is saying, but what it's showing is you need to look like a kingsman to to move up here. And then there's this whole plot about – so that message is mixed right there, right? And then there's this whole plot of Valentine, this character played by Samuel L. Jackson. And coincidentally, this came out on Valentine's Day, so that's, that's funny. Not nicely done there. Um, but Samuel L. Jackson is an individual who has also moved up in social class due to his wealth, due to probably some entrepreneurship and, and the business he's developed, and now is – trying to save the elite and destroy the rest of humanity and the big turn at the end of the film is the elite are all destroyed so it's 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 trying to say something about class here but But it's not really successful in doing that but it's not successful but here's why i'm kind of okay okay with it is because I can't take anything in this film seriously. Like, I don't know if there really are, like, if if Matthew Vaughn is really trying to say anything here about class or if this is just some mindless, Look, stylized entertainment. Maybe uh, this is the thing. I just don't, I know it wasn't supposed to be taken seriously. I understand that, but I don't think that the way it was presented made it, it it just wasn't it wasn't too uh, far enough over the top for me to see it as like a comedy. That okay, so that's what I want to 
that's something I want to talk to you about. So that's and, why I'm feeling this feeling because I'm just like I w- I left that theater kind of like I don't even know what they were trying to do there. And you know, and I have to say it's basically from the opening shot and I know that they were totally being irreverent and they were pretty much trying to throw clearly every offensive possible trope in. I mean the the opening scene So you have the terrorists, the arrows. Right. Yeah, yeah, which and, I was and, also not a fan of. Well, th- this is what I mean, and so I understood that. I understood that. And they I'll were... say I'm, it's not that I'm a fan of terrorism. Terrorism, <laughs> no, bad. No, no, no. But it's it's any... it's the way that they were presenting. Yeah, it. and again, and so that any was... character that is a ethnic minority is a villain in this exactly. film. Exactly, that's and, what I. Take and so to. I know. So that's the whole thing is that I know we're supposed to look at this and be like, yes, it's totally not supposed to be taken seriously. But the problem is, is that I I think people will. And and it's yeah. not it's not enough it's not enough of a stylized and ridiculous film that like I think a lot of people won't get that you know what so, I'm saying uh, like so, so adult a, adult Alima too walked out of this theater thinking many different things but overall I thought wow that was a highly stylized very violent film that made me laugh a few times and I overall enjoyed it and then I got home and an hour or two later when I started um, writing down my thoughts for this episode one thought that I had was this nagging thought in the back of my head was wait a minute what would teenage Ali Matu think of this film and I don't think I would get any of the stylized over the top that kind of stuff and I would take this much more seriously and at face value and that thought led me to this thing that I want to discuss with you I think this film works if you see the foolishness and uh, don't take it seriously and you kind of see it for the for for the stylized farce that it kind of is right Uh, I mean a lot of people have called this movie vapid that it's dumb all of that. There's been a lot of criticism thrown here. Here's what I am having a hard time kind of grappling with in my head. You know, IO9 called this film um, or said about this film, Kingsman has some of the most beautiful violence in movie history. Um, this is something that uh, The Atlantic also backed up. They said the violence may frequently be extreme, but it's engineered with exceptional wit and inventiveness. Now, there's a scene in this film that we were alluding to er- earlier where Colin Firth finds himself in a, in a um, Westboro t- type of church. Uh, that is uh, spewing a lot of hate mm-hmm. and divisiveness. And Samuel Jackson triggers his SIM card device, <laughs> which I kind of like the ridiculousness of yeah. that, which turns off uh, your executive functioning of your brain, the control areas, and revs up the aggression areas of the brain and basically um, leads everyone to attack one another. Now, that scene, adult Alima too, was having a hard time watching that scene because we have the protagonist who is sworn to protect everyone for we don't understand why is killing everyone in sight along with everyone else but that scene yeah and it went on for a really really very long long time time. and it actually to me it felt much closer to honestly it felt much closer to like um, just the feeling of like 28 days later it felt like more like a zombie film in how the violence was happening something like zombie land sure you know and that's the thing it was like uh, this and, and so okay 
as I was watching it, I'm like, man, that is amazing choreography. And I am a big fan. As you know, Kill Bill is one of my comfort films. Um, But somehow that is much easier for me to watch than the scene in this film. So uh, Kill Bill is immediately something that came to mind. And I was thinking in my head, because I I don't know if that worked for me or not, Conrad. It was pretty uncomfortable um, scene to watch. And technically, You mean in Kill Bill or in... Um, in Here, in in Kingsman. Oh, yeah. I Uh, couldn't... No, I mean, I was watching it and I was just... I actually was getting a little bit nauseous because it just... It just didn't stop. And it was got it got just sort of and again, this is the piece of the film where we were talking about it's supposed to be ridiculous, it's supposed to be over the top, we're supposed to be seeing things that could never actually happen, and that's where they went with that. But I still found it really hard to watch. But yeah, I you, I have a feeling Teenage Ali probably would have been like, huh. Teenage Ali would have been like, Yeah, get him, yeah, kill him. Right? And here's something I, I think that's uh, that kind of uh resonates here. New York Times says he doesn't um, speaking of Matthew Vaughn, he doesn't use violence, he squanders it. Some directors overdo it with crane shots, close-ups, and dissolves, but Mr. Vaughn gorges on splatter, splashing rooms with red until it's the only color and emotional note left. Uh, so, thinking about Zombieland, thinking about um, some of the other zombie films that you talk about on Reanimated, this is a big theme you guys talk about, mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit different because it, it's easy to rationalize killing zombies um, because they're not necessarily human. And we can debate that, and I'm sure you guys do on, on Reanimated, um, but they they are not us. Well, they're right. The there's, and there's the expectation, which is why, you know, 28 Days Later, it reminded me a little bit of that because that isn't, that's more of a... Um, like a viral. A pla- well, a plague film, a contagion film, if you will, um, sure. where the humans are, I mean... They can still starve and die and that kind of thing. Um, so you get more of that horror feeling when, when you know, especially when the first, when the main character first beholds one and has to, like, get away from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and there is that feeling of horror when he does have, like, when he has to first kill one of the, one of the infected. Um, and so there's an expectation in zombie films and there is also a level of, you, I don't want to say cheesiness, but it's there. Like it's, you, they're they're not as you said, they're not us. So there's not that feeling, and I feel like the difference between something like this and say Kill Bill, is is that Kill Bill is it's extraordinarily stylized, but it's stylized to the point you know with a lot of those those vintage martial arts films, it's clear that the blood is fake. It's clear that the limbs falling off are fake. Like there is like. And also right before the most violent scene in the film, there's a switch to black and white. Right. And there's like some stuff is done in silhouette, like so that you're not seeing, you know, and even at the end when then like a whole room is standing before uh, Beatrix. It's just ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's to the level of ridiculousness that you can be like, okay, this is fake. This is movie making. I did not feel that here at all. Even though that's the thing, you it it can only work for you if it gets to that point where things are so stylized that it's almost a reminder that hey, remember you guys, you're suspending your. You're, this is a movie. You're suspending your disbelief. Yeah. This is not an actual thing. That's why I think what what's much more emotionally difficult for me to watch are films that are much more realistic in their violence. We see that in a lot of propaganda films where they are either vilifying the enemy or um, or sometimes in in more documentary type of films where you see real 
um, inhumanity against, uh, you know, our inhumanity to each other. And those things are very, very hard to watch. Did this film get to the point where it went past the the believability into an, a realm where it's highly stylized? Well, and- yeah, and, and I think that they did eventually. Um, and I think that would be the fireworks that we eventually saw. So what are these fireworks, Conrad? Uh, so basically, you know, the, one of the plot points is that all the elite have a little chip in them that Samuel Jackson and Gazella place there in order to control them, but also in order to bring them to the safe haven. Because basically the whole big villain plan in this movie, like the the, the master plan or whatever you want to call it, is that Samuel Jackson has basically said that in order to save the planet, which is now past the point of saving with the number of humans that are on it, there needs to be a call. And the people that he decides to call are all the people that are the non-elite and instead saves the elite, which is a little strange given that a lot of their tactics are part of the reason why the planet's in trouble, but okay. Yeah, and that's the whole motivation, right? It's to stop Yeah, it's sort of strange. Um, And so in any case, he has all all these chips in them and our hero and his... uh, I don't... What what would you call him? His... uh, is it his, what would be the sort of equivalent? I mean, he's sort of like an Alfred, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, his Alfred, uh, basically. You're talking about Merlin? Yeah, Merlin. Um, yeah. He he basically hacks the system so that they can overload these chips. And I think he even calls him M. Does he call him M? I was wondering about that because I was like, ah, yes. Which um, is a nice Bond reference. A little and you're Bond like, is, re- he, is he saying that because he's Merlin or is he doing a little Bond reference? Well, of course, it's and, a Bond reference. And, uh, yeah, and then there's a whole King Arthur's Court stuff, which is mm-hmm. sort of replicated here, which is a nice little British thing. Yeah. Uh, but sorry, go ahead, Connor. Oh, no, in any case, uh, the, the chips overload and all the people's heads blow off and they blow off in like these horribly just over the top CG fireworks and it's ridiculous. And so this is the point with a great, uh, sort of orchestral score that you would hear on the 4th of July. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a shocking and then hilarious scene. Uh, and it, it, for a film that's sort of talking about these themes of social class, you see the elites who are trying to escape the destruction of, uh, of, of so much of humanity end up succumbing to it. Yeah. Um, so th- I mean, that scene was incredibly stylized and not very realistic. Well, right. And so it does go over the top at some point, but this was the first point. I mean, this was the first point where it was just like so ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't like this. And that's also the end of the film. Right. Like the very end of the film. And then it's sort of like, all right, we're going to get even more ridiculous. And so there's like a crazy ending fight scene. Um, There is, you know, the... Well, the the other piece that you and I were referencing as well. Uh, sure, there's sure. an interaction between our hero and the locked up princess in the cell, and she she basically says that if he saves the day, he's allowed to like have sex with her. Um, in a specific type of in, sex. In a specific uncomfortable place, <laughs> <that> someone <laughs> would would want to put it. Um, 
but we're a PG show, so we're not going to say that. Um, but, and, and this is the thing about that, Conrad, is, um, again, another example of a female character who's lacking some agency, who's kind of locked up. And yeah, but really, that's her, what I'm saying. Her only like, worth in this film is is her body and well, her beauty. But that's what I'm saying is, like, I think that they were trying to go for that horribly, you know, stereotypical spy genre like that's what i think that they were trying to do that with the characters including the other female character roxy um who is is part of the kingsman she's she's gone through all the different levels but she's still not like she's not badass enough to do anything by herself really you know what well, I mean? She does like, blow up a satellite by herself. She does, but she screams. But after doing that, she screams all the way down. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like really. Sure. Yeah. It no, just drove me. It drove me nuts. I just you know, and and I guess my thing is, is that man, haven't we seen? I know you're making fun of it, and I know you're making fun of all these films, but haven't we seen enough of this crap? Come on. Sure. Give me something better. I don't feel like this added to that's, any that's kind of conversation. Is, uh, that's the thing, Conrad. It is. It's really hard to know if they're intentionally playing in to some of these tropes. Oh, I think they definitely are. Because if they're just repeating them and kind of like repeating now, them and not knowing. To me, I think it's very clear that it is intentional because they pull in just about every trope in the book, including uh, the main character, Eggsy. His mother is with his horribly evil stepfather who's beating another her. Another example of yeah, a woman another without trope. agency. Well, that's what I'm saying. So, like, I feel like they are trying to say these things and maybe they're trying to say that this is how ridiculous things are in other films but because it's not quite ridiculous enough as i said i don't know that everybody will get it and that that definitely is something that just doesn't sit well with me well so if you want to play on those tropes um like samuel l jackson's character so beautifully does when he says it's not that kind of film you need the at least one female character to directly challenge that trope right to call it out to break the fourth wall and to challenge it and break it in some way. And when it comes to gender, we did not see that happen. Not and that is definitely a lost opportunity. It could have been one of the most kick-ass moments of the film um, to see the new Lancelot kind of break that in some way, call it out. And it would have been one of those moments where the audience cheers, you know, this is, we, we, we live in a hunger games world. We, mm-hmm. we can, we can tolerate strong female characters who kick butt. We, we can do that. We don't see that here. Um, so despite, uh, here's where I, I, I am going to disagree with you, Conrad. I got from the moment in the beginning of the film where you see the old Lancelot, I believe it's Lancelot sliced in half. Oh, no, I knew that's what they were going for, but they weren't consistent with it throughout the film. I don't think. That's where I disagree with you. I think every every time we see the characters being violent and fighting each other, I think it's a pretty consistent, highly stylized, Mm. not realistic sort of violent fantasy. And from the moment of of, of slicing that person in half, from the moment where... um, uh, Mark Hamill's character blows up, but we don't get to see it. And then that bar fight scene, um, I, I I got that how stylized this film was. Uh, so I was able to suspend my, delis- my belief 
enough for that to work for me, for the violence to work. However, I have concerns about how people who are younger will see it. And I think you're right. It's marketed well, in a way. Honestly, that's more where I was bothered by watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, yeah, I get it. I do get what they were trying to do. Although, again, I disagree with you. I don't think that they were successful. And we'll get into that in the crossover chamber. Um, the- but but primarily, we were sitting in that theater. There were a lot of kids in there. And they were cheering. And they were, you know, maybe... And again, maybe I'm just taking this way too seriously. That's totally possible. But I don't... I think a lot of this stuff is over their heads. And and that, that bothers me. It's over there. And I, I agree with you. I think Teenage Holly would be really... I don't know what, what he would be thinking about this film. Um, my bigger complaint about the film is really, uh, as AV... AV, as AV club calls it uh it's 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 a bit vapid when it comes to its um what it's trying to say about social class you know it it paints a lot of broad strokes here and uh i hated the fact that anyone any other character besides our lead who is from a a a lower socioeconomic class is really seen as being an idiot as being a drunk as uh you know really unable to speak with any kind of uh, coherence um, is a uh, a physical abuser. Um, it's it's basically showing that the one character who does rise above this isn't somehow different from everyone else that somehow doesn't belong in that social class. And then the message is about, sure, you can rise above, but you need to, you need to look the part um, and you need to blend in and kind of conform with all these other individuals. But then that's, you know, you have Colin Firth saying we need to diversify who the Kingsmen are. So all of that, I get it. And people might say, look, Ali, chill out. Like all, all these messages conflict with each other. It's not trying to say anything about society. It's not offering social commentary. But that's when I come back to exactly what you say about the violence, Conrad, which is a lot of people aren't going to get that. And they're well, going to take some of the big uh, big messages here that are there and they're going to take them for first face value. Well, they are, I think. And so, you know, that's I think ultimately that's why I kind of have to give this uh, like a a lower score in my book. I also don't really care about any of the characters and I'm not interested at all in seeing a sequel to this. Like, I don't care enough. I don't care enough about it. Um, And one other thing I was going to just bring up, um, I just looked at my notes uh, to remind myself to talk about this point, which was um, during that crazy fireworks scene. They also basically show that they're blowing up President Obama's head, yeah. which they say it's not supposed to be him, that it's like a mischievous hint. And, you know, and I do think that sort of hearing what some of the actors and the creators of this are talking about, they're like, it's not meant to be Obama. It's meant to be sort of a representation of him. And, you know, we're making mischief wherever we can. And so they're all saying this is all in good fun. But I, give, I, I kind of feel just with the political temperature right now, of the world, just a lot of the stuff in this this film just doesn't doesn't you know. And granted, we're 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 in a world where the interview was released. You know what I mean? So so you have to kind of to take this with a grain of salt. But it just didn't. It, there are other people that do this better, and and 
it's much more interesting to me. As you said, the vapidness of it bothers me. Well, there's um, there's taste, what's tasteful and what's not tasteful. And then there's uh, free speech and artistic expression. And, you know, I think they, they have every right to put in uh, whatever they want there for public figures that, you know, that is uh, – not considered slander here in the United States. So um, I'm all in favor of that. Oh, I'm not saying that at all. I'm like, go for it. If you're going to be as, be as absurd as you want, but do it better. That's that's my thing. Uh, okay. Um, okay. I, I thought you might. I'm not. Have been no. I'm. I'm not going. I'm not going down that road telling people what they can and can't do. Got um, it. Okay. But All right, I'm there with you. <laughs> but but I do think if you're going to do it, and if you're going to go to that point, um, take a page from South Park, or sure, you know, yeah, yeah, you know what yeah, I'm saying, like, like or Team America, like. So your kind of perspective here is they they had their feet in many different. Areas and they were unsure. Of, they weren't really embracing any one of those, or they weren't embracing it enough. If that makes sense, yeah. Like South Park, you know, this is absurdist satire. Mm-hmm. Team America, and, and I do think that this is what this is supposed to be. I do think that, but I just don't think they did a successful job of it. That's all. Well, so I was looking at my notes. One thing I wanted to bring up was. Um, Samuel Jackson, his character, Valentine's Lisp. Oh, well. So, I, I, I don't know. Here, here's my thing with the violence, and it relates to the Lisp. Does the violence push the story forward? Does it add much to it? Um, and I, I don't necessarily know that it does. I think this is just kind of eye candy um, is, is what the violence is there. I feel the same way about the lisp here. I don't know if that's really adding anything to the character. I know the character was sort of modeled after Russell Simmons, the Def, uh, Def Jam hip hop mogul. Uh, he was sort of the inspiration here. Um, I don't know if that was needed. I don't know if that was necessary. It was used for sort of cheap humor, I thought. And uh, I don't know how appropriate it was. Well, and then you had him, you know, there was that scene where he's eating McDonald's with sure, yeah, Colin, yeah. which I actually thought was a very cute scene and setting hilarious. up that it was a, you know, it, it's, you think it's going to be all serious and they, they kind of like dash your expectations there. Yeah. Um, but um, I just wanted to sort of, sort of leave this with a quote from Mr. Vaughn for an interview he gave. Um, and... His his feeling about the movie, quote, this whole mm. movie is meant to be fun. We're all having a tough time in the world right now, and it's meant to be two hours of letting you forget about everything. Mm. And the, I guess my problem is, is that it didn't really do that for me. <laughs> so what? And that and does, instead, it, instead it touched off some stuff where I was just like, oh my gosh, I just paid this much money on a Saturday, and now I'm like... I have some of these Im- these images in my head. It didn't. I didn't find it as much fun as I think well, I, I was. I had to. a lot of fun when they had the. I want when they started off with the, I want my MTV and the and the sort of cassette playing. I was like, all right, this is the little Guardians of the Galaxy. I had a lot of fun when they're referencing Maxwell, until until Maxwell they panned Smart. out until they panned out to where they were, and then you were like, oh, not again. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, there's moments where I had a lot of fun. And then, you know, that that church scene is how can that not remind you 
or I'm using I know. a double negative here, but that reminds you of everything that is uh, I know. that we are struggling with. It's yeah, not just so it's, class. It's it's a lot of these political differences, the religious differences, the uh, the hateful nature of speech. And it's not just that church, but Colin Firth's character, his response to one of the women in church is sort of a hateful mm-hmm. response to it in a abject defense of everything on the other side of the political spectrum. So I, I think Colin Firth, that might be some of your, I, I, so I love Colin Firth. And I think that is a fine looking gentleman in a very well tailored suit. And I am quite jealous of the fact that he pulls off a double breasted suit. Ali Matu cannot pull off a double breasted suit. Most men cannot. Actually. Most men cannot. And man, he looked good in that suit. Um, so my hat's off to you, um, uh, Mr. Darcy. Um, but but, 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 the film is uh, is anything but escapist, um, no, surreal, absurdist fun. Um, and that's the thing. I guess when, I, when I'm going to go see something like this, that's what I want. So yeah. it didn't succeed uh, on that for me. And by the uh, way, I am somebody who absolutely loves spy films. So, so all that so, being said, Conrad, I, I still enjoyed it. But I, where I'm coming down on this is while I enjoyed it, um, I, I really think this is not a film that's appropriate for all audiences. And I, no. I very rarely say that on most of the stuff we review. Yeah, yeah, this definitely. Well, and again, I come back to the the point where it felt like it was being marketed to kids, at least from what I saw. But I did not see the bar fight scene or I would not have said that. But the trailer that I saw very much felt like it was it did not. I, I would not have guessed it was going to go in the direction it did. Well, well I don't think it. most people saw the bar fight scene. I think the, the most people saw the trailer. And in this era of superhero films, you're like, oh, okay, it's kind of one of those with a bunch yeah, of British yeah. people, so. but it's spy stuff. And that's kind of how the film was sold, and that's not what it is. Um, but we're talking stylized violence. That's a big theme that's, that's come up over here. Um, there's another film, Conrad, uh, that has a lot of stylized violence. Shall we enter... The Infinite Crossover Chamber? Sure. Welcome. Um, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I was like, is that like a zombie kick-ass theme song? Yeah, I was that? trying to think of something very British to say. And, um, uh, you know, I was going to say, manners maketh man. But then I was thinking, oh, I'd probably go with a, like, a, like a McCartney, say something in the McCartney voice. You know, he was on Saturday Night Live, 40th anniversary last night. and That's not really a British accent, but that's a no, pretty good try. <laughs> I don't know what it is, Conrad. I see I've, You're tired. I've neglected okay. my, my infinite crossover chamber duties. Conrad, who is in the infinite crossover chamber tonight? So tonight in the infinite crossover chamber is Kingsman versus Kickass. And the question is, which movie does stylized violence better? So... What does that even mean? Okay, so first off, let's kind of define the terms here. What do we mean by stylized violence? Um, to me, stylized violence is, especially if you're, if you're talking about in the film world, it's, it's a very specific choreographed um, like um, fight scene. So that makes me think of The Matrix. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of um, Star Wars. 
Um, right. And, uh, you know, a lot of those lightsaber battles, it makes me think of, um, let's see, kind of like Captain America, Marvel, the Avengers. It makes me think of a lot of violence that you're not going to see in everyday life then. Stuff that right. takes a high level of production, of editing, of choreography, stuff that um, – choreographing, I guess um, – stuff that is – you're only really going to see – on the TV or on, in films. Right. And it's, you know, and when I say choreographed, I do mean almost like a dance. Like it's typically like visually like makes you react to it. It's it is like watching a dance. Um, it can be very graceful um, and it is meant to create an emotional response in whoever's watching this. Um, so part of you is, especially if you're thinking about films like Kill Bill or something like that, you're watching it and you're kind of like, you're watching it, you're aware of the fact that horrific things are happening, but part of you is also going, oh my God, that looked so incredibly beautiful and amazing. Mm. So um, I think that's also a mark of it, is that you're almost watching it less as an act of violence and more as an act of dance slash choreography. So, so it's an art. It, it's yeah. much more an art where no one else would walk by something that's more realistic violence and no. say that's beautiful um, unless oh, it's gosh, like a scene no. out of fight club um, or something and I, and I would also say that the, the other part of this is is that usually these kinds of if the kinds of scenes that that i think we're going to be talking about in this particular instance um are the the, the kind of violent scenes that are they're they're sustained so they're they, they're they go on a really long time they cover a lot of ground um it's there it's like a deliberate sustained piece of the film mm -hmm. um, in order to get a certain reaction out of the audience. And sometimes that that reaction might be humor or horror or just amazement and kind of uh, wonderment at some of the details that are happening on screen. I, I think I'm with you with this definition. I think we, we've okay. got a good working definition. And so it can be for many different purposes, but it's it's really we're talking about an art. A dance is, is how you said it. I think I, I like that. We talked a lot about the stylized violence that we see in Kingsman. Um, there's, there's a lot of of it and uh what about kick-ass now kick-ass is a film that came out a little bit earlier uh mm -hmm. was it 2010 i, I think. think so yep yeah and this is another matthew vaughn film based on another comic by mark miller mm -hmm. uh, uh apparently this, uh they get along really well is it millar or is it miller mark millar Mil oh, you're, you're right you're right uh sorry about that mark millar and um, these, yeah, you're right. These two are, are good collaborators. They, um, I think Matthew Vaughn has a nice way of um, of adapting some of the visual style that we see there. And and this is a more uh, more of a close adaptation of the source material than Kingsman is. Kingsman took uh, some departures, I think probably because they were, the film and the comic were developed a little bit in parallel. Um, but Kick-Ass is a film you really liked. Yeah, and I mean, it was a film that actually did create its fair share of controversy. Uh, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, who's the person that played Hit Girl yeah. in, in this, a lot of critics were really upset because of the profanity and the violence that her character ends up sort of dishing out. Um, but overall, people, and not not just people, but myself, uh, in, really enjoyed this film. And, you know, 
I was thinking a lot about this walking into Kingsman, and I guess that's sort of what I had an expectation of, is that kind of um, over-the-top. Because I feel like Kick-Ass was over-the-top, and and yeah. just a bit more ridiculous than Kingsman to some extent. Um, well, there's a little bit more suspension of disbelief, right. because it's you're dealing with a, with a superhero kind of idea. Yeah, but and- he's kind of like a... He, he's, Sort of like a more realistic superhero. He is a realist. Yeah, yeah. He's he's kind of like if a guy did dress up kind of like Spider Man and go to fight crime without any of the superpowers or training or anything. Yeah, this is he's that same Peter Parker type nerdy character. And there's a lot of similarities with the film. They both are a bit self referential. I think that the backstory for Nicolas Cage's character was told through a comic book. Uh, which I really liked. It references a lot of TV shows and movies. Mm-hmm. I think Lost was referenced a few times. So there's a lot of uh, similar styles here and um, some pretty violent scenes. And I think you're right. Hit, the Hit Girl violence is is uh, highly controversial here. And um, I think it brings up a lot of when, – when people see stylized violence that is uh, graphic – or um, intense in some way, prolonged, or seems to be glorifying it. You know, that's something I hear a lot um, in the criticism of these kind of films is you're glorifying violence. And that's when I think, well, adults like us can, um, can see these films and appreciate them for what they are, for the artistry that went into them, to appreciate the dance, as you said. I think that's a little bit harder for kids to conceptualize on their own without some guidance from adults. Uh, from, yeah. from adults. Now, every child is different, and I would never say, don't take your family to this or that. You know your kids better than I do, and right. every family has its own culture. But I think kids have a harder time understanding this without any guidance. So um, was stylized violence adding something to Kick-Ass, the story? Well, I mean, this is the thing. And and I guess this is this is where I came out on, on this. And I will just say ahead of time, Kick-Ass wins the crossover chamber in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I gave I think it away. You made that point very clear. Uh, very clear. Um, from the beginning of this film, it's very clear that we are in a in a totally different world. And as you said, it's much easier to suspend disbelief with this. Um, from the gadgets, from the costumes, also from the fact that he's using MySpace. <laughs> that too. That too. I mean, there's just so many. There's so many like. Um, little pieces of this film that points to how ridiculous it's being that it's easier to to realize that this is just total fiction. And I get that, that Kingsman is trying to do the same thing. I think the um, climax of the film is a jetpack. Um, right. So what I was going to... Yeah, go, go for it, Con. No, so that's what I was going to say, is that like the final crazy scene that I am going to talk about is where uh, Hit Girl and Kick-Ass go in to take out the bad guy and get revenge because they've killed her dad. And so it is the most ludicrous, insane, stylized choreography, you know, and especially like heightened by the fact that this is a kid. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there are parts of this that are really hard. Like she gets beaten up in this. It's hard to watch. Um, But there is this at the end of it, 
she and Kickass are successful. And so they're, you know, I don't want to say they're redeemed, but you feel like at the end of it, all of their hard work has been rewarded to some extent because they're successful in what they did. Sure. Um, I, I feel like maybe in Kingsman, the reason why it, it's it's just it was so hard to watch. As you said, it's like these real people. It's hate breeding hate. And then at the end of it, one of your favorite characters gets killed. Yeah. And it's just not, you know, and you're watching him as this character that you've built up this whole time killing these people, which as hateful as they are, they're still innocent people. Without really understanding why he's doing it. And I get that. And you know, something's off, you know, something's off, but it's still, it's still really hard to watch. And in Kick-Ass, I mean, maybe it's a moral thing in my head, but in Kick-Ass, you know why they're going after. Well, and Conrad, the other thing that's really frustrating with that scene is we don't get to see Colin Firth's character really struggling with the consequences of what he just did. Right. And had we done that, that could have totally changed the meaning of that scene completely. Had we had a little bit more time where he's saying, oh my goodness, what did I do? And he's really having a crisis here where he broke all of his rules, killed innocent people, and struggling with that. And then you have Samuel L. Jackson coming in and kind of killing him. Um, sure, that could have been – and by the way, it was great to see him kill Claude Firth and be like just horrified by the blood. I just think it been like, what am I doing here? This is – oh, I can't see this. I thought that was actually kind of hilarious. Um, but that being said uh, – That scene is really problematic, and that is the most uh, heavily stylized violence, violent scenes in the film. So if we are looking at that and comparing that with the ending of Kick-Ass, I completely agree with you. The most stylized scene of violence in Kick-Ass works for me in the context of the story, whereas the most stylized violent scene in uh, Kingsman as beautiful as a technological achievement, or as a technical achievement, hey, I should say. From, from a choreography, like seriously, from a fight choreographer's point of view, that is an insane scene. Absolutely I mean, it, it's insane. insane. And so I was even thinking while I was watching it, I was like, oh man, I just wish that this wasn't going down this way. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the whole idea. It makes me think of the Star Wars prequels yeah. where everything is CGI. Right, and right. And just it's sort of because like, you can doesn't mean you should. Doesn't mean you should. Just because you can, you know, it's like Alfonso Caron doesn't go around in every film and doing everything as one extended shot. You know, even in Gravity, sure, the first fifteen minutes are one extended sequence, but after that, you know, there are break breaks there. You, you the tools and the techniques are only there to propel the story forward, and I don't necessarily think it did there in that. What we what basically happens in that scene is um, you realize the extent to which this this weapon works, and that could have been done in a different way. The reason why it works in Kick Ass is I think there's uh, an emotional cathartic kind of moment there and there is um we understand the motivation and it's it's sort of the culmination of of the whole film and it 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 works there in a way that it doesn't work in in king yeah 
I will, been, I will agree again, with you Again, that could have been completely different. It could have been completely different and Colin Firth had to deal with this, the consequences. And that could have showed us the real integrity of his character. We didn't get to see that. Right. It, we, I'm, I'm realizing this as we're discussing this, Conrad. We could have a whole discussion about violence in, in media. You know, I'm, I'm heading down to the American Psychological Association uh, Council of Representatives meeting, which sounds a lot more fancy and uh, sort of uh, King Arthur's table kind of, kind of thing that it actually is. Um, but one of the things that's going to be debated is the APA's new policy on violent video games. And there's going to be a lot of debate about the psychology behind it. And the psychology is really mixed. It's really complicated. We know that violent media and video games in particular do increase aggressive thoughts, but aggressive thoughts are different than violence. Having an aggressive thought, thinking about aggressive things is different than acting in a violent way. And lots of things increase aggressive thoughts like books and like violent TV and like uh, all this unviolent films. So I think there's so much meat here to discuss about these kinds of films because we're seeing this a lot more. Um, Well, now it actually seems to become part of a general formula, right? Like as you were saying, like you could see this, not this specific scene, but this kind of thing in just about everything. And we have seen it. And I can think, um, I can count probably like maybe 10 of the last films that I've seen other than the theory of everything, of course, where <laughs> where this has been sort of like a mainstay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. no, it would be an interesting thing to talk about. But, but we you know where pr- we didn't really see it? Where? Guardians of the Galaxy. A little bit, though. You did see it a little bit. Not Weird. as much, but We're a little about. bit. Um, in the scenes in the prison, there was definitely a little bit of that going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah but not actually, quite right. as graphic. It's, not quite as graphic. So. A lot more is hinted at than seen. And right. you kinda, you're kind of you kind of telling yourself, yourself in your head, uh, oh, those characters are dead. Uh, they're just kind of shot at. Um, <laughs> right. No, you're right. It's, it's a little bit less graphic. But, but yeah, you know, our, our society has really come to accept violence in film and um there's you know there's a lot we could discuss about that well there's Um, a lot we can discuss about i mean that debate's been going on a very long time whether these kinds of things desensitizes people to violence or whether it is really just that is sort of like a letting off of steam so to speak and you know i think i think you could debate both sides of that um but I think that that debate would keep us in the crossover chamber forever. <laughs> so no, we should probably. The crossover chamber is already losing uh, right. containment and stability right. here. Structural integrity is failing. So let we better escape, Conrad. I see the escape hatch. Um, let's open up those doors and get out of the infinite crossover chamber. And on to. Our top five. What are we talking about today on the top five, Conrad? To top five today is top five British exports. and British exports. How did you define this? Um, I define this as anything that has its origin in, uh, in oh, the UK. Oh, my gosh. You're gonna, <laughs> you are going to drive me insane in this top five, aren't you? I probably am. Yeah. Did you yeah. cheat? You cheated a lot. How did I cheat? I already well, know you have cheated. What did I? What did I do? I cheat? know you're gonna pick like bizarro categories and well, look, Conrad, justify it, and then you're gonna be like Citizen Kane. 
So, just okay, say. That is not in any way. Uh-huh. Uh, All right, but let's let's start us out then. Uh, so, well, so, I know you're so, going to have Doctor Who on the list. I mean, that's going to be here. No, somewhere. I actually made an honorable mention because of how much we have talked about it. So I, okay. I left I that a, as I made an honorable I, mention too. <laughs> I, I we've talked about it so much that I I made Doctor Who, Torchwood, all of that universe into its own little honorable mention. But no, so 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 to. Let, let, let's test my theory a little bit. Let me hear what your number five was. Um, okay, so my number five is something I I was debating between two things. And um, the way I've come down on it is uh, by saying uh, long-lasting literature. Um, so originally I was thinking of Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, James Bond, um, and that led me to think of Shakespeare and Dickens and all of these uh, different authors uh, who have contributed to um, to works that we continue to read now. And that made me just kind of – I thought the best way to conceptualize this category is long-lasting literature, stuff that's been around that continues to be taught and beloved by many, um, a so, lot. So, so wait, you're encompassing your entire top five is literature and poetry. Uh, my number five is uh, is 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 yes, maybe. Wait, uh, your your number literature. five is the entire category of British literature and poetry. Yes. So it's not one thing that you just picked that you think is influential in some way. That is one thing I picked. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <sighs> that's my number five. Oh, Ollie. My number five is Cadbury chocolates. What? That's my number three. <laughs> well, I beat you to it then. Clearly, I care more about Cadbury chocolate than you do because I made it my number three. Well, you know, food can only get you so far, but the stuff of the mind, my friend. Um, but, you know, there's been the big debate lately because uh, basically Hershey is trying to stop the import of real Cadbury chocolate to the U.S. I know. And by not- real, we mean the stuff that is made by Cadbury, which has like a much higher milk and cocoa content and is by far like just hands down. It just kicks the crap out of Hershey's. It's so much so, better. It is, it's and so, so I will better. be really, really sad if this actually succeeds. I suspect a black market of Cadbury <laughs> um, importing <laughs> is going to be happening. Um, you know, if you haven't had it, go to a, your local British store. They're all and- sold out, Ollie. What? Yeah, like everybody's just buying it up. You haven't seen this? It's no. It's all being stockpiled. I can't get it. They used to have it at like the little corner store up here. They're all gone. Oh my so, goodness! Yeah. This is not. I'm not happy about this. So, so uh, basically, friends of the show that live in the UK or are planning to travel over here from the UK, we like we like Cadbury's chocolates. Just throwing that out there. Dairy milk. I would like one flake, uh, little crunchy. crunchy. Oh, really? That milk. was a mind meld. That nice. was a mind meld. Those are my favorites. Uh, flakes, I like crunchy, those and dairy milk. You know what I really like? Have you ever? Well, when I used to travel over to the UK a little bit, I would come back and they had these. Um, they were basically their version of the um, sort of like the Hershey's miniatures, but so it would be like miniatures of all the Cadbury stuff. 
No, but that sounds yeah, like a variety and, pack. Kinda? Yes, yeah, and they're tiny, what? and they would come and they would come in this like little bucket. And I used to buy like a couple of those buckets, and I like wouldn't share them with anybody, and I would just eat them all. So, a picnic is another one that I really like. Um, but yeah, so Cadbury's sounds number amazing. five. That sounds amazing. Um, Cadbury's number five. Uh, good pick. Um, number four. What's your number four, Conrad? Um, my number four is Mr. David Bowie. Um, he is amazing. He is a great British uh, import, export, whatever you want to call. Um, I know, I know, yes, yes, the Beatles. I got, I am the Rolling Stones and all of that. But I had to pick one because I myself did limit it to one, Ollie. Um, and you know what? David Bowie is near and dear to my heart. He's like an artist that I still adore and respect. Uh, hunky dory. Check it out if you have not. Um, and you know, there's also a lot of great covers of his songs. Um, and we cannot forget his performance in Labyrinth, of course. So, uh, there he is. That's a, that's a good pick. Um, I, uh, I can't argue with that one. Uh, my number four pick is the English language. Oh, God. Really? <laughs> Ollie, you're I, being ridiculous. You know I, this, right? I, I, I promise you my did other you, picks did are, you are put, less ridiculous. Did you put, pick the, put this top five together like to see how much you could drive me insane? Because that's pretty awesome. I would never do something like that, Conrad. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not do that to you. But getting back to my ridiculous pick, the English language um, is probably the most successful language right now on the planet. Now, I also realize that it's the most successful language right now, the most spoken language because of the British Empire and the whole idea of the sun never setting on the British Empire back in the days. Um, I could have said the United States as a successful import here. But, uh, uh, as a joke, I was going to say the the Puritans, but I would never have actually added it to the list. <laughs> well, that's the difference between you and me, Conrad. And then I, I like have to think, things. was that a blessing or a curse, the Puritans? Hmm. Yeah, I know. Just saying. I know, right? Um, but it's, um, it's not the easiest to learn language. There's a lot of things in it that don't make sense that are just stupid artifacts of the past like how you spell night um but it is yeah i know or knife is my favorite um but it is what it is and uh it's a highly successful language even though i had trouble understanding some of the brits and kingsmen who were using it uh that is my number four and my number three was cadbury so that leaves us with your number three oh my number three well i actually you touched upon it before but I, I chose Sherlock and Sherlock Holmes in all of its many iterations because I feel like this is something that has been pretty much exported by the British all around the world. It it really does show up all over the place. And, and it's super hot right now. It's super hot right now. There's like several different um, levels to it. We had our show on it, as you remember. Yeah. Um, and I just had to throw it out there just because it's... It's this story that people just love, and they keep coming back to these characters and to this idea, and so I had I had to have it on our list. 
I uh, I support that pick. Um, that takes us to number two. Now you had David Bowie for number four, and my number two is the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I told. By the you, way, I, I love the Beatles too. So it's not. It wasn't any any slam on the Beatles. I think they're course. amazing, but but. You know, I couldn't resist David Bowie. Like, come on, he's David Bowie. It, it is, it is. I think very representative of you and me, David Bowie versus the Beatles. Now, just out of curiosity, who's your favorite Beatle? Uh, you know what? I, I people I know ask what me you're this. Say, you I know do. What you're say. Yeah, you are going to be a George Harrison person, is my guess. Well, I love George Harrison. Yeah. Um, but no? I John do. Lennon? It, eh, it's you know what it is Ringo? no 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 i feel like you can't pick one because as the group they they just did well as the group and i know both uh mccartney and lennon and harris harrison and uh ringo star they all had their own little solo careers and you know clearly we saw some great songs come out of both mccartney and lennon but they really worked well as as the fab four you know? Of course, but they do have these different flavors. I mean, you can. Uh, I really. I mean, I love them Look, all. I do. I do love them all. But this is the thing. I think I would like to be friends with Paul McCartney, even of course though he is a great gentleman. Even though I re- and, and George Harrison, um, even though yeah. I respect John Lennon's um, creativity, I feel like he he would have been a much more difficult person to deal with. <laughs> so possibly. Possibly. Just my, my sense of it. But, you know, I, I think they're all good, my friend. Who was your right. favorite? Uh, Paul McCartney. But, I, you know, again, I love them all. Um, I love George Harrison. I mean, he, he did a lot with Here Comes the Sun. Um, and uh, I, love, uh, the, I love the mixture of uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Um, Day in the Life is amazing, and it's so the two of them. You know, and they're kind of the Lennon sort of um, uh, craziness with the McCartney sort of like uh, uh, love me do-ness. So um, I, I love them all. Um, but they're, they're my number two pick because they were such an export. Um, and their appearance on the Ed Sullivan show was so, um, so interesting because they had no idea what they were, uh, how popular they were in the United States and what they were walking into. And, um, it, they're just, you know, that's, I don't know if we're ever going to experience a moment quite like that. I mean, there are other really popular bands out there, but when it was the Beatles, it was just the Beatles and, uh, and Beatlemania. I don't think we're going to see anything quite like that. Um, what's your number two pick? Um, my number two big, well, I pulled a little bit of an Ollie here, um, in terms of graphic novels and, and the artists that put those together. I do feel like, although the U.S. Wait, that's, that's your category, graphic novels? Well, there's some specific ones in here that we've talked about, but I want to give it a little bit of an intro. Um, hmm. I, I do feel like, you know, comic books and funnies and that kind of thing, Definitely the U.S., like, that stuff started to really take off. I mean, we had the, the t- detective comics and, and you know, um, and, and Marvel and all of that stuff going on here. However, I feel like some of the really just very interesting and groundbreaking ideas came from over in the U.K. Um, and very specifically, I am talking about the work of Mr. Alan Moore. <laughs> and so, uh, um, and I just feel like some of his storylines and the re- directions that he went um, within his graphic novels 
were very different and unique and very and heavily influenced things that happened over here. So it is Mr. Alan Moore, even though he's still over there. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any for folks who have not read much of his work, would you have a specific recommendation? Well, you know, it's going to be Watchmen. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, any, uh, okay, any and secondary? you can go, you can go, uh, Watchmen, you can go Hellblazer, um, or, you know, from hell, um, V for Vendetta. Um, he's really, uh, he's pretty quite versatile with yeah. what he does. You can't really go wrong. Um, um, unless you read some of his more recent stuff. Yeah. I'm not talking about that stuff. Clearly. Okay. All right, um, we'll and you know, over. I know Sandman um, by Neil Gaiman and all was also influential, but I, I I just have always been more of an Alan Moore fan in terms of this the sort of the whole package. So, um, good pick. That leaves and, us, and part of that is because of how it addresses different social issues and things like that. So, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to say. Right. Alan's, Alan Moore is really trying to say and is successful. And making right. some commentary right. about, about he, society. he is a bit of an eccentric, clearly, but yeah. but I the way that he he is able to put across certain ideas makes me really happy. So good pick. Um, that leaves us with number one. Uh, you're never going to guess my number one. It's a very specific thing. Um, it's not a strange. It is OB. the crown jewels. <laughs> no, those aren't really exports. Those are kept in the in the safe, right? In the tower of of England or something. Yeah, that's right? where they're kept. Right? Isn't aren't they they're kept in, in Buckingham Palace? I don't know where they're kept, but they're kept somewhere. That is now my pick, Conrad. Stop distracting mm-hmm. and uh uh issuing these tangents of yours. My number one pick of Super Fantastic Nerd Hour episode fifty-five is uh, Rowan Atkinson's Mr. Bean. What? That's yeah. your number one? Yeah, it is. It's my number one pick. Here is why. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, I really love Mr. Bean. Um, and uh, Rowan Atkinson uh, created this character, um, I think filmed most of these episodes in the late 80s at some point. And... Um, it is. It was the great return of this silent form of comedy, where the main character uh, really doesn't say much of anything. There might be other people involved in these short skits that do say things, but um, the, the the humor is all in the situational humor, and it's all these kind of universal situations that people go to, go through in in your daily life, and because. Because of that, because it wasn't really a language-based humor, I think it's the ultimate British export because it wasn't really language-bound. And there are these great stories of uh, Mr. Bean fever, (laughs) Mr. Bean mania, I guess, kind of sweeping the world because – it was so easy for this character in these uh, these episodes to cross um, to cross borders because it wasn't really based on language. And for that reason, and for just how much love I have for this, and how much nostalgic joy it brings me, and how much it makes me laugh even to this day when I watch these skits, um, Mr. Bean is by far my number one pick. All right, I I will give you that. Mine is a little bit more serious. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Um, uh, mine is uh, the work and ideas and research done by Alan Turing. 
Uh. Um, and the reason why that is um, is because basically without him, a lot of, and I think eventually maybe we would have gotten there, but he did give us a very leg up in terms of uh, developing um, different concepts, which which without which today we would be not not doing the things that you and I love to do so much, <laughs> i.e. Um, working on computers as much. Um, and that's why he's considered to be the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. Um, you've ever heard of the Turing test? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think we are now seeing may may eventually be... Uh, we may see see artificial intelligence. We've seen, I think, what they thought a computer did pass part of it, correct? Yeah, yeah, very um, recently. Very recently, um, but... Which is kind of a big deal. Um, and, you know, I shouldn't... You know, there's a lot of scientific research that has come out of the UK, and that's, you know, it is not... It is certainly... He is not the only scientist that was ever there. I could talk about a lot of different people. Um, yeah. And there's some... You know, Darwin would be one of them. Um, but um, the TV, the locomotive, so much stuff was invented there. Yeah. Oh, there's just been like honestly, just just Newton. Um, there's yeah. just so many. I mean, seriously, there's if you've ever been over to the UK and they, there's like this whole. Um, if you go, um, where is where's like the where Newton is buried? Um, it's in the. Is uh, sorry, I have to look it up. Well, um, have you ever been over there to be Westminster Abbey? Sorry. Oh, wow. Um, and you oh, walk yeah. down and there's like a whole section and, and it's if you walk there, you get to see just how many people actually were from the UK that did all this groundbreaking work. And but I feel like Turing is somebody that really battled adversity and eventually died um, for what what and who he was. And um I'm just going to use his name wherever I can. So there you go. There we go. Um, all not right. Mr. Bean. Not Mr. Bean. <laughs> did <laughs> no, you have that any, would be my pick. That would did be you pick. have any honorable mentions? I do. I, do. Um, I got John Locke here, uh, uh, given the influence of this individual on uh, the United States Constitution. Um, I, similar pick, I've got the Magna Carta. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and uh, my last but not least is Earl Grey. Oh, nice. I was going to throw tea on there, too, but I felt with the Cadbury's it might be too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, of course, you know, because we've talked about it so much, I did not put Hitchhiker's Guide and Douglas Adams up there. And I, you know, close, close, but no cigar was Monty Python. Oh, good pick. And of course, 28 Days Later, because I think that that just influenced the sort of new fast zombie genre that we're seeing now. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much when you really think about it, just how heavily influential the UK is in terms of uh, different, especially pop culture, but but just regular cultural influences. I'm going to add one more here, which is Are You Being Served? And kooky, crazy British Comedies, humor. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's some great ones there. Um, but, we didn't, well, neither of us said Downton Abbey. Uh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Um, well, uh, Conrad, this was a... A really, uh, we we covered so much ground this week. Um, a lot of fun discussing this with you. Um, 
if people want to continue the discussion, and we would love to hear what you thought about Kingsman, um, what do you think about the stylized violence in this film and in Kick-Ass, as well as um, the film, what it's trying to say about social class? Is it more than just a, a vapid display of violence, or is it just kind of that? Let us know. You can reach us at Nerd Hour on Twitter. We have a website, which you can reach by going to Nerd nerdhour.com. We also can be reached by email, info at superfantasticnerdhour.com. Uh, Conrad, where can people find you this week? This week, they can find me on Twitter, Die Prince, and also on Reanimated with my buddy Stuart Tif- Tiffin. We talk about things undead, and we talk about a lot of Walking Dead. <laughs> um, actually, Andrew Lincoln was going to be one of my my exports, but I decided to to hold off on that. <laughs> so, um, and we're reanimated pcast on Twitter and reanimatedpodcast.com. So, and anything else to share with us this week, Ollie? Um, no, I just want to uh, say uh, thank you to the listeners. We had a little bit of audio problems on the last episode, and uh, we got some uh, good feedback on that. At the Travis uh, Smith said, uh, no worries, you guys do great work, and I'll mal- manage with a little audio hey. trouble. So, well, well, as long as your voice sounded silky smooth, Ollie, then, you know, <laughs> we're all good here. <laughs> we, you know, it's funny, because last week you changed your audio setup. This week I changed mine. We had a couple of false starts this this week recording this episode because of my setup so we're working out the kinks here but you know we we upgraded some of our systems which will hopefully allow for um a better quality and faster turnaround on the episode so better singing better singing better singing really? yeah you no. know you know that's what that's what the audience is looking for um so it's all for you dear nerdlings um and you can reach me i am on twitter at nerd uh, no wait that's nerd hour i am at alima too um i also run a little humble website called brain knows better where i write about the psychology of science fiction and i am the host of the psych show on twitter which you can reach by going to uh, not on twitter on youtube um and you can find that by going to the psych Every week I'm trying to make psychology fun and easy to understand. Um, I think that's all we got this week, Conrad. Uh, Until next time, live long and prosper. Indeed. Indeed.